0: Okay, so today I'm talking to uh, probably the best-known best, m- book, best known bookmaker in Great Britain and beyond, uh, a dynasty of bookmakers, Victor Chandler. Thank you very much, Victor, for uh, agreeing to talk to us. Thank you. Um, let's go straight into it, really. What, what would you say was the pinnacle moment in your career so far as a bookmaker?
1: I think my career's ended now, so, uh, yeah, I have to think back. Um... I can't think of one specific moment. Um, the, the pinnacles for me were going to Cheltenham and Ascot and, uh, um, and have a winning day. I think those were all uh, memorable. Um, but it's racing's about the people, and what well, then was about the people and the atmosphere and, and everything you got out of it as a sort of moving circus, because it was, you know, Ascot one day and York and Goodwood and something else, but uh, the pinnacles have always been Cheltenham and Ascot.
0: Um, you're the you're the third generation of the Victor Chandler bookmaking uh, in organisation. When when you were growing up, were you aware of the family's heritage in the racing game?
1: Um, no, I was sort of partially unaware of what my father did. I suppose you are until you're sort of eight or nine. Um, I knew we went to the races a few times with him. Um, and unfortunately my, my father suffered with terrible ill health during his uh, um, during my childhood anyway. Um, he had uh, an injury that he got during the war to his back which incapacitated him for a couple of years. Um, and I remember him having to crawl up the stairs to, to be able to go to bed. And um, when I was about um, 12 he had a lung collapse and I can remember him going into the hospital. So, um, Largely unaware until about twelve, I suppose, um, about what he even did, and he had, you know, th- those times were pretty hard because the, the country's economy was hugely damaged by the war.
0: Yeah, and you led, you led a fairly, let's say, bohemian life as a young man.
1: Um, I wouldn't call it bohemian, I wanted to see things and experience things. And uh, and I think having been to um, prep school at the age of eight and then on to uh, to public school, um, although lastly at Millfield, which was entirely different. I mean, I caught the tail end of fagging at, uh, at Highgate, and it was a pretty tough place. Although I've still got friends from there. Um, once schooling had finished, I wanted to experience to see a bit of the world. Um, I managed to travel in America. Um, I worked in Paris for a bit. Um, and then I work in, uh, worked in the Balearic Islands. So it was, you know, I saw a bit more of life than perhaps I would have done if I'd stayed in the UK.
0: And your, your father died relatively young, so you took over the business young too. Were you a reluctant heir?
1: Um, I had no intention of going into the business, and my father didn't want me to go into the business because he, I think he saw uh, how, um, diff- or thought how it was going to be very difficult in the future, and he could see a, a monopoly and um, and the attitude to gaming, uh, gambling in those days is well a bit like it's it's coming to be now. I mean you know it was frowned upon. I mean, Bookie's son at public school wasn't you know. Um, uh, wasn't that popular, um, perhaps with the masters and the other, well, there were exceptions of course, but the masters and, uh, and perhaps the other parents.
0: Okay, no, the, no, the, the byproduct that you hadn't worked actively on the pitches with your father was that you couldn't inherit the, the tattersall yeah. pitches.
1: I hadn't worked enough. I'd, I'd worked uh, uh, school holidays, sometimes in the office, sometimes um, on the pitches especially at Goodwood, because it was near home in those days. Um, not terribly successfully, although I, I did like a bet. Um, uh, but the, the, those were the rules. The rules is probably the best thing that ever happened to me, though, losing the pitches all at the time. I thought it was a disaster, um, because my father made a good living out of them
0: okay did you think that um i mean as far as i know the bpa weren't unknown to bend the rules for people do you think there was a vested interest not to let you have them at the time
1: possibly i think that uh, you know they were probably the best pitches on the race course were the number one at, at most of the southern tracks or at least number one two or three um but it's hard to look back or care really i think the, the world was a different place in those it was there was a hangover from the uh, the tougher days, especially you know, the, when the, um, people tried to muscle in on, on on certain things, the chalk charges are gone, but um, there, there was still an element of people at the race course that were um, perhaps a lot different to uh, they are now.
0: Yeah, and you said it was the best thing that ever happened. You got onto the rails quite easily
1: There Um. were there were about four bookmakers on the rails at the time.
0: So was it you would have been one of the youngest in your early twenties? Was it intimidating for you?
1: Uh, uh, Yeah, of course it's uh, um, you know expected to call out the odds occasionally, and uh, um, all that came out of my uh, mouth when I think it was Kempton was the first time I I stood on the rails uh, was a squeak, but um, it was a matter of needs must, and I had, to, um, I had a, a mother and, uh, and two sisters that were, you know, one was just leaving school and one was at school. Uh, someone had to keep them, and uh, the, the country had not gone through a great run at the time I took over. We were, you know, deep in recession.
0: Did, um, did you inherit some of the respect that the other bookmakers would have had from your father, or did they look at you as a bit of prey?
1: Um, I think not only the bookmakers, but some of the um, the pro punters. Um, there's, you know, there's no quarter given on the racecourse, and there's no room for sentiment. I don't think. Although th- there were people that encouraged me. I mean, I mean, I got very friendly with John Banks, and he was um, uh, very helpful in the early days. We remained friends. Um, but I had a good staff around me, and I think I was lucky there.
0: You mentioned that you had some um, good people around you. Tell us about Joe Dunbar and Val Powell.
1: Um, I inherited Joe, uh, who was a partner of my father in what was then called the Trade Office, which um, took bets from our, uh, well, they acted as a commission agent, really. They took bets from other bookmakers, either hedged them Uh, Worked on a margin, um, although that became extremely difficult with the tax. Um, But he was, um, I believe, a Hungarian Jew that Dunbar wasn't his original name. Uh, He was extremely good with figures, helped helped to teach me odds and uh, um, how to play the game, and uh, uh, was very, very supportive.
0: Okay, now it. Well, we assume it wasn't going all that well because in seventy seven, you were going to sell up, but your uh, your friend Alan Kinghorn talked you out of it. How did he manage to uh, to turn that around?
1: Um, I think what brought it about. I mean, the uh, he felt the economy was um, about to pick up. Um, he had just um, joined Playboy. When uh, uh, when he spoke to me, originally I was going to sell to Sunderland's, and um, I was taken out to lunch a few times, um, and uh, I tried. Uh, well, and uh, people tried to uh, convince me to to sell, and then Playboy a- approached me because they wanted the pictures on the rails, and they wanted the client list. Um, Alan, although he was working for Playboy at the time, um, we had a couple of different talks and he said, you're mad because it's just, the race course is just improving. And he was right because I think when my business turned round, um, the help of Mrs Thatcher and everything else, with uh, Queen's Jubilee 77, that you realised there was much, uh, a lot more cash around, a lot more wealthy people and things were changing
0: another member of your team bill ty how did uh, how did you latch on to him when he l- la on onto you
1: um bill bill's um uh, girlfriend um at the time worked in my office as a telephonist um and I was looking to replace val who'd um was getting past it although he worked till he was in his mid seventies covered for bill um when bill's girlfriend knew that um karen knew that um, i was looking for a clerk she asked bill to, uh, if bill could come for an interview and we clicked the minute he uh, we, we sat down and then from then on he i, I considered he was probably the best clerk on the race course and um and became a friend as well as a a clerk and we traveled together and uh, although he didn't have quite the so, uh, social life I did, because most nights he would grab a quick dinner and have to do the books before he went to sleep. Um, we had a good social time together as well, and we remain friends to this day.
0: Yes, anybody that's read your, uh, your book, Put Your Life On It, uh, would know that you, your team was very close-knit, yeah. so how did you handle relationships when you like, were a friend and also the boss? Was it difficult?
1: No, because the people know, everyone's got their jobs. My job was to front up things. My job was to um, uh, look after the customers and make them feel comfortable and recruit customers. Not not that the other boys didn't do the same thing, but we were all there for one purpose, is to to win um, and do it as efficiently as possible. So everyone would back each other up. and, And as I say, people knew their jobs and my job was different to theirs.
0: Yeah, now you you rose quickly up the, up the ranks sort of on the rails. When you first started there, who were the who were the um, incumbent big layers at the time?
1: Well, of course, Labrook's and Hills Hills were, were, um, uh, had a big business. They had obviously a huge clientele, and the, their pitch was always busy. Labrook's still had some very very good customers, but um, at the time, Cyrilstein was as much a punter as a um, a layer and liked to. have Back favourites and the Labricks would send money down to the racecourse all the time. You had Heathorns um, and trying to recollect, recollect two, uh, Hector McDonald appeared at big meetings. Um, there were quite a few that, that would lay a substantial bet.
0: Now you mentioned, um, seriously, that you straddled the line between bookmaker and punter as well.
1: Yeah, I've always liked to have a bet and um, I always. And, and I think if you've got people working for you that are good enough, can, that, that can price up races, and where there's a discrepancy, um, big discre- discrepancy, it's, it's only the same thing as making a book. Although part of my business was was looking after customers who I considered um, we'd beat year in, year out. Um, and part of the business was to uh, uh to play the market so you'd be you'd be laying the trade horses if you really thought the horse was underpriced or backing a horse if it was overpriced and it, to me it's the same thing
0: so where did you gather your because obviously it's a big skill to price up races accurately so that you not me that.
1: I'm, I'm with, i i worked with i'd you know would spend i would get up early and and be on the phone for Hour, hour and a half um, every morning, especially before um, the mobile phone, which was a, a godsend to us, which was, you, you didn't have to stop working the minute you got in the car. So that ch- changed my life completely. Um, you know, the, we had to, I had to get to the races, and um, after a gap in the car with no no telephone, and and get into the telephone box, and maybe be in there for. 30 minutes before that, if I was lucky to get in the phone, uh, lucky enough to get in the phone box. The world was a different place and it's, it's hard to impress on my kids um, how different it is. that they, they, they can't envisage a world without the mobile phone. Um, you know, I wish we'd recorded moments of a, a panic when not being able to get on the phone at Lingfield or Plumpton where there was one telephone box.
0: Okay Victor, we talked about you are um, on the phone to your your card markers and your, your form students and where, where, I mean where did you get such people with, that wanted to help a bookmaker?
1: Um, I was either told about them or they came to me it's you know a mixture of everything and uh, and also the people that had contacts in stables that helped and things like that, although I never found them reliable. Um, I found trainers the worst tipsers of the lot. Um, they're obviously uh, and owners even worse. Uh, everyone thinks they've got a star all the time.
0: Yeah, who were the who were the best punters that you um, dealt with, and did you sort of find out at your cost, or were you told to avoid certain people, them right. the caution?
1: Yeah, i mean, the professional punters you knew, and um, and you'd be wary of them. And there were Dudley Roberts and you know, uh, Johnny Light's and people like that who you probably wouldn't beat over a year unless you got lucky, unless you were selective in when you laid them and laid them when you wanted to, rather than being forced into laying them. Uh, I felt no obligation of la- um, in laying any professional abut. Uh, you, you treated everyone differently.
0: So how, how did that used to go down if you sort of said not... Really part of
1: the, part of the business.
0: Okay, how about people that sort of appeared on the scene, as if from nowhere, that looked to have a crystal ball unbeatable and then they lost eventually many of them
1: there were many of us yeah came and went
0: so how long um, would you give them a spin would you, would you sort of get it well an instinct? You,
1: you, you get the instinct because people have too many bets so once people are betting handicaps and things like that and you, you know it, 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 it's it, it's i mean probably bill can remember names more than i but there, there was one man that came regularly with her uh, and he was called the uh, the plastic bag man and was walking around with tens of thousands of pounds and lasted quite a long time but um, the luck ran out.
0: Uh. So how did you, I mean you've mentioned that you do decide if you wanted to lay some of the clever people, I mean was it a mixture of you know sort of cut the bets, cut the odds, follow them in, offer them a price you could earn from, I mean was it all that?
1: Everything, part of it, you never knew what, what, Normally it was when I, I felt that a, a favorite uh, was underpriced, um, and, and you, 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 you know, I, I suppose I did that because of the information I had, all the time figures I had, or um, when we, when I'd drawn up my father, uh, my, uh, uh, my battle plan. But, you know, I'd I'd stick my neck out occasionally. And obviously I wasn't always right, but, you know, I survived, which is the difficult thing.
0: How difficult was it not to get a rush of blood to the head on occasion?
1: Um, I think you learn through experience more than anything else not to get carried away and feel how the the day is moving. I mean, you know, the the many, many times that I... I looked at the card in the morning and thought this is very, very dangerous and we'll have a uh, a hard job um, winning today. And occasionally I put, you know, have a treble or a fourfold, um, all the, the horses I thought could be very dangerous. Uh, it was one of the ways of insuring and although that, that doesn't always help you because the, the the biggest win I had through a, a multiple um, with favourites was on a day I sponsored at, um, at Ascot, um, the Victor Chandler Chase Day, um, which the bet came to um, you know, six figures, high or mid six figures. Um, unfortunately, I put it on with the wrong person and they, they couldn't pay.
0: So would you, would you, back in those early days, would you just go to the main meetings or would you still go to those midweek ones that you knew were probably going to be much good?
1: Um, I was going, I, I had, it went in fits and spots, especially if you were following customers. And um, I'd still go to Plumpton and Fontwell occasionally. I tried to avoid Folkestone because it was an awful place to get to. and. Uh, uh, and let someone else go but the the sort of london tracks i always went to sandown and kempton you know as this what you know they're not gaff tracks but they're um and they have their big days but you you try and go to all those even if they were midweek
0: okay now we assume these days that in the halcyon days that we're talking about in the the 80s that anybody who wasn't a professional punter or a professional bookmaker could get what they liked done is that true
1: no not at all
0: so what not would at the, all what would be the situation where you would well s-
1: the pros would spread their bets anyway and have agents and commission agents and things like that and you never knew um for example you never knew whether money at the course was barney curlies or or who who it was but uh, it's you know you, you you had to have your wits about you all the time and look for connections.
0: Now, those days, the eighties, <coughs> um, there were so many characters in racing in bookmaking. In your book, you read Barney Curley, Jeffrey Bernard, Lulu Mendoza. I mean, do you want to tell us about a few of the, uh, a few of the those sort of characters that um, stick in your mind?
1: I think it's the characters that, that that made it in a lot of ways, and Lulu was one of those people that you, you know i think someone wrote in uh, online about him saying that it was um, profit through chaos um i mean how he ever made a living god knows um he uh, but he was always laughing well at times i've seen him um very despondent but normally always had a joke and i you know i'd known him since i was a, a child um and uh loved being with him and loved his stories which were normally huge exaggerations of what had really happened but uh you know I, I do remember on uh when his hot went on uh caught fire when he threw a cigar and on, uh, on top of the cash in the bag um and alan kinghorn and i were standing looking at the pitch having what we were just chatting and um uh, uh, you know something caught our eye and we saw what was happening and uh, there were the sort of Mendoza family tipping the um the money on the ground out of the bag and all jumping on it as it was going up in flames and it was possibly one of the most um hilarious moments I, I ever had at a race course um but that that was typical of uh, of Luna uh, there won't be many more like him, so the same as with Jackie Cohen, who was um, normally drunk by the second race, but still managed to to make a book all all his life. And I can remember as a, a very young man going to Brighton Greyhounds, and um, I parked up in my mini, and this was just prior to my father dying, actually. And my father had a dog running at uh, at Brighton. Jackie Cohen drove up beside me in his Bentley, um, fell out of the driver's seat and the car started to roll down the hill, the the car park was on an incline and I managed to, um, he'd left the door open so I managed to jump in the car and put the brake on Um, and he didn't know who I was, that that, 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 uh, uh, I knew who he was having seen him betting on the board um, I stopped, managed to put the brake on, and uh, and he he said, "Come here, super boy and he said, "Here's twenty quid, which was quite a lot of money in those days, um, and uh, I'll uh, I'll buy you a drink as soon as we get inside." And uh, I introduced myself, and he, he uh, and you know I'd like uh, he was we were fond of each other till the uh, uh, to the end.
0: Okay, the one we've mentioned already was Barney, and there's a video clip online of uh, him wandering down the the rails and backing a horse to win 25 grand with you, and I believe it's Bill Ty Clarkin. Yes. What would you do with bets like that?
1: That, it depends because the business, a lot of the business I did with Barney was done over the phone in the morning. Um, Barney would, to my mind, rarely have a big bet on something um, while he was at the race course that he was taking serious. Now Barney got bored sometimes at the races. He'd have done all his business or told someone to do the business for him. And it, it, th- those were throwaway bets for Barney when he wanted, to, um, uh, you know, he wanted to be entertained in a race. But they weren't the serious where he got his serious money from. He was too clever for that.
0: Okay, now you took on also some big Australian punters. Kerry Packer
1: and Alan Bond. Yeah, two different uh, animals. Kerry Packer uh, turned up at Brighton uh, races after playing polo at Cowdery Park, I think, uh, and was tipped, I think, uh, opened an account with us there and then, and and then uh, proceeded to back about three winners, having been tipped up by um, Mickey Fletcher, who was a bookmaker, come punter, uh, also called The Asparagus Kid. Of I think he first arrived at the, uh, the race course Selling Asparagus in the Midlands. Um, that's where he got his nickname. Um, uh, it took me quite a bit of time to, to, to forgive uh, Mickey for that. but uh, And it was very, very expensive. But Alan Bond was something else. He arrived at Royal Ascot one day full of it. Word when he was you know, at the peak of his uh career when he had you know he won the uh, america's cup and and all that sort of thing um and uh, uh he was he started betting with me on this. i i i checked him out by phoning a friend at aspinall's uh, casino who who vouched for him and he i mean he lost an awful lot of money in the first three days um, and one evening i I was in a, a restaurant um, uh, during those three days and I had the table next door him I was entertaining a few customers and a few friends and he was at, with a whole group of people uh, He left uh, earlier than us and said good night when i I went to pay the bill he paid the bill which I thought was very sad having um, you know taking into account that I really should have paid his bill. Anyway, the, the, the week carried on, but on the last day, uh, he started a bet with Heathorns, and um, he backed three or four winners. And I, t- I saw him later in the day on the on the uh, on the Friday. And I said to him, "Why did you stop betting with me?" He said, "Oh, you were unlucky. I'm, I had to have a change." And he said, I've, I've, "I've changed my luck, and I've backed a load of winners." So, nice to meet you. I never saw him again. That was just one one uh, Ascot. That was.
0: So, somebody like that, who I assume was betting in sums over and above the majority of your book, would, would that go in? Would you be making a book, or would he just go as a, a separate? Entity? What we
1: call top of the book. Yes, he'd have to go to top of the book. And we'd, we'd play lots of customers that we just, if 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 a customer arrives at the races and you know they're going to have, um, you know, a bet every race, it's rather a different thing to, to facing up to someone who's going to be selective, and you will see once in a blue moon. Um, th- those are the ones you had to be careful of.
0: But would you still be sort of trying to make books otherwise?
1: Yeah, um, you'd have a separate book, so you'd you'd be. Uh, should be looking at as 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 trying to make a book it, being on the rails is not a case of uh, you you don't have the chance of really making a book you're not going to lay every runner in a handicap far from it i mean you' you know you're going to lay the front few and um, and like the other horse any big prize horses are either someone shrewd or an owner that wants to that, that believes in his horse.
0: Right, we can't talk about punters in the 1980s on racecourses without talking about uh, Terry Ramsden. Did you have much dealings with him?
1: Um, quite a lot. Um, not he, he came to me a bit later than he came to um, <coughs> Labrooks and, and a few of the other private bookmakers. Um, but he still gave me plenty of business through an agent of his called Bobby Cox, who was a a butcher uh, and I happen to know because he, he supplied the meat at, um, um, at Walthamstow Stadium and his son was a friend of mine uh, uh, who um, who at that time had just um, finished driving one of the minis in the, uh, in the film with Michael Caine, the uh, Italian job strangely enough and uh, anyway we had a relationship and he would be putting on Yankees and super Yankees and God knows what every morning. Uh, for Terry and splitting them up all through the bookmakers because most of them came to um if they won would have come to more than anyone's limit Labrooks like Hills or us so you know Terry wanted to win the world in in one go um and another one that you, you just wrote down the bets and oh uh, because overall he I mean he wouldn't just have bets in every race at one meeting it would be all every Meeting in the country every day, the more the more races there were, the more bets he had. Um, and I think it was a hobby because he was making so much money at the time. Um, I know he thought it didn't matter. Perhaps latterly, when things went uh, went slightly wrong for him, he probably wished that he hadn't squandered, enjoyed. I don't know the money he uh, he lost, but he's. Uh, he certainly was a character and you know you knew when he'd arrived at a race course with the helicopter and all those and the uh, the bodyguards and uh, the fanfare that preceded him but you know we don't rarely see characters like him on the race course
0: okay now my card marker tells me that dawn run winning the go cup in 86 is one of your costliest ever races is that correct
1: yeah, and you know, if you put into perspective what a, a big bet is to anybody, um, or a big loss for a bookmaker, a big loss uh, is a lot less if you've got a small pot rather than a big pot, but uh, even this, when I'd hopefully, in those days, built up quite a big pot to be able to, uh, I'd, I'd risk uh, too much because I was opinionated and I'd seen it fall at uh, Cheltenham, um, and I thought it was hype too much, um, and I was wrong. And uh, you know, I thought I was right coming to the last, and I was wrong. And uh, lastly, I bought a, a signed photograph, um, a signed by a photograph signed by John J. O'Neill and I bought his boots and whip that he um, he used during the race. And I put them in a frame, and and it reminded me, not to be pig-headed. That all.
0: I mean, how, with that going into figures, how, how over and above your normal maximum would you have stood that? Over point? double, yeah. Double maximum. Very uh, silly. So was that was that purely your opinion, or did your card markers all agree, and you? It was
1: just a matter of circumstances, really. Uh, I, there was, uh, I got to where I wanted to. Uh, in the book and then one of my bigger punters had a huge bet at the last minute so it wasn't all peak headedness but I could have backed it back, that's all I think. I know that I could have, I, I, I made that split second decision to oh well, well, well in for a penny, in for a pound, not a good decision ever.
0: Now as well as Cheltenham, you you love Aintree, have you got any, any particular fond memories of the Grand National Meeting?
1: I've got loads because there always seemed to be some uh, some incident at uh, at Aintree, and obviously this all these meetings. I travelled with um, uh, well, uh, Alan King and I shared a driver um, because none of us, neither of us, were very good drivers. Both of us, I was used to work in the car, and uh, Alan used to do the crossword. was less interested in. uh, Racing the niners, but we 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 went up there for many years together, and um, there was one occasion we uh, one year we always used to say at Southport to try and avoid Liverpool. Uh, It was easier drive in and uh, uh, and less hassle uh, because Liverpool wasn't the most pleasant place in the 80s, early 90s, Uh, and we arrived in Southport. the evening before uh, the first day, and uh, there were eight, ten police cars. Uh, there was some sort of riot in a cafe, and there were th- things being thrown and punch-ups happening and all that, so they thought, oh, you know, we won't go out tonight. And um, anyway, we did go out later on. Um, uh, but the, the riot was opposite the hotel, and it seemed to go on for an hour and a half with the policeman. Um, getting hit over the head and certain rioters getting—I never did find out what it was all about—but it was typical. And that, that evening, we went out to supper with a few people, um, and we were walking back, and a gang of young kids in their early teens ran past us with rocks. And there's an arcade along the main street in Southport, and they seemed intent on smashing every window as they went along, so we, you know, it was a pleasant evening, so we went home to bed. Um, in the morning, uh, I think Stephen Little was the first one to notice it, that um, his cash was missing from his bedroom, and it was um, tens of thousands of pounds. Um, Alan woke up and had his briefcase taken with not quite so much in it, but enough to hurt. I was lucky because uh, Bobby Edwards, who used to be the floor man, had put the, uh, most of our cash in the um, in the hotel safe. But I did have a, a banker's draft for 25000 stolen, plus all the punts. I'd kept the punts separately to the, the other. Anyway, this is, we thought. So we all conferred in the, um, uh, in the lounge of the hotel. Um, The police arrived, and the policeman was a police constable. Two of them actually, who looked about twelve. And we said, uh, said, you know, we related the story, uh, and uh, and it was me that said to him, "Is it someone more senior that could come along and, you know, deal with this?" He said, "Oh no, sir," he said. All the senior police are on the beach. That we've just, we just found a body. I thought I just want to get out of this place.
0: <laughs> so did they? Did they actually come into your rooms when you were asleep in it? Yes. Terrifying. <laughs> okay, something a bit more cheerful. You, you've been a, an owner. an owner of horses.
1: Yeah, I've got one with Alan King at the moment.
0: So did, you've obviously had uh, success at Cheltenham. Men in Our Position was the was
1: the, the group name for the syndicate. Yeah, that that came about because one of the members of the syndicate, Malcolm Kane, we used to tease because he, he was occasionally slightly pompous, and he had uttered the phrase, "Well, Men in Our Position," and when we all, uh, you know, sort of creased up in laughter uh, at this pomposity, so we we, we did. Sort of but it was a tease on Malcolm, uh, who had a share in Zainar, that, that went on to win the, uh, the Triumph Hurdle. It was great fun to be with a lot of friends.
0: And did you see things, as an owner, did you see things in a different sort of way? Did it change uh, your attitude to making a bit?
1: Yeah, I think so. But, I would, uh, you know, I, I loved owning. I would, uh, as, like most owners, I d- don't think I really profited. And there's lots of horses that didn't reach the the race course all didn't run, uh, well, you know, all owners' geese are swans, uh, not swans, are they? It's a, it's a, most of them are, you know, had a couple of good horses that that had accidents on, uh, on the way. I had a, a horse that Mickey's to be thought would go well in the, very well in the Grand National that um, had its prep race and died of a heart attack coming over the last while in front. I uh, had a second at uh, in the Kim Muir that, that jumped the last in front, called Murano, um, that was a gift from Charles St. George, actually. But overall, and I had one good horse in America, the V.A. Veen, that I bought in France with um, uh, Ian Fry, who used to own uh, horse racing abroad that did all the trips. And that, that did, <coughs> and I'm talking about in the... Um, early 80s, um, Stuart Cargay, who would have been a jump jockey who trains, uh, trains in France now, um, found it for us. And then, uh, I mean, this, this is how good he was. He said, this this will win on the dirt in America. Don't keep it in France. So we sent it to America. And it won a million dollars in prize money in the eight early 80s, which was pretty fantastic uh, and great fun. Yeah. And the only time I went to see it run, it got beaten, and it won seven times. So <laughs> <It wasn't
0: laughs> Have you yeah. have you got um, sort of any ambitions with owning horses for the future?
1: I think if I go back to England, I'd I'd like to be able to visit uh, um, the, the horses and see them. Uh, I, I've just dipped my toe in the water again after a few years. I did have a share in a couple with Gordon Elliott about uh, well, a few years ago, uh, and neither of which turned out to be any good. Um, that was my last venture. Um... Other than a couple of horses running in Spain, um, so I, I think I, we have intentions of moving back to England uh, from Gibraltar stroke Spain uh, in the next year or so, or possibly sooner, and th- then i 'd probably get interested in it again. I still ride, so, so I like being round horses
0: okay, Victor, in the last part we talked about. Horse racing in, uh, and potentially moving back to England, but you ventured much further than that—South um, East and Far East Asia, uh, where punters betted millions. Um, was that a bit of a hairy experience?
1: Yeah, I was and wasn't. I made some good friends there who I still speak to. Um, it all came about because of the nineteen—is it nineteen ninety four World Cup? Was it? Was it World Cup? Yeah, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, well, let's say it was um, the, when we go uh, when we saw uh, well uh, an influx of deposits um, uh, to bet on football uh, with discerning punters from the, the Far East who wanted to place their bets on course and didn't want to pay tax. I mean, originally they started paying tax, and I, I got one huge punter from Hong Kong who I'd never met who, who sent uh, an enormous deposit in. And then we had a case of um, a man turning up at the office who I vaguely knew, um, who uh, turned up with a million pounds in cash um, uh, as a deposit for also, and said he was going to Newbury that day to place the bets on that day's um, uh, matches. And I'd left for the races to go to Newbury and shortly after he departed, the office was raided by the Metropolitan Police. Um, the money was confiscated. Um, the man's car was stopped on its way to Newmarket on the motorway, and he was arrested. And I was none the wiser, sort of, until I got to the races. Anyway, it turned out, well, I got a phone call in the car, but then, anyway, it turned out that the money was totally legit, legit it had been sent by a, a well-known Hong Kong businessman. This was small bets for, and this prompted me. And I, I did a lot of business with Michael Tabor at the time, because um, the bets were, were enormous, um, and uh, uh, it prompted me to go to the Far East and do some research. And I met, I was introduced bu- uh, to a lot of people, uh, potential punters, while I was out there, um, and realized that there was no future in this without, um, uh, without having uh, a jurisdiction that would where I could take bets uh, without paying tax because the punters certainly wouldn't pay tax. And then I learnt about the Asian handicaps and, and all the rest of it and Tony Bloom came to work for me. Um, and then um, we expanded the business. And it was, you know, very exciting times, and it was, the start, everything was changing in the world. And, you know, it was changing for for one reason, and one reason only, technology. And that's what changed our businesses, what changed the world, eventually. But we were, I think, as I've said very often, the two businesses that have changed, or, or uh, that were world leaders in technology, were the, the porn industry, and the betting industry, um, because that was the way they could expand quickly, and it was exciting times that the world was changing quickly and then you know more recently um, although it's not that recently now the tablets and the and the smartphone um, have changed it again, and you know that, that uh, then it was you could bet on a you you have to have a computer a desktop now you, you can walk around with a phone and um, and play roulette; it's, it's extraordinary. But you know, I, I think, as I said, that what changed the business and what um, made it what it um, it was then is that we we as a company ad- uh, adapted to technology fairly quickly.
0: Now you you talk about the uh, the, the huge bets, and we're talking millions. Yes. I mean, even though you were a well-established and obviously well-resourced you know, company, how you know, how many of those type of bets successful could you've, would you have stood for before you decided this is getting a bit
1: Yeah, it wasn't one sided so we were seeing business on both sides
0: uh,
1: we saw customers that um, couldn't win because once people have would have betting on nearly every match that's televised you're, you're going to win in the end Um, There were some pretty worrying moments. Tony Bloom's uh, got a wonderful attitude to aiming. You wouldn't know whether he's won or lost. and He likes to play big, and the bigger it is, the less emotion he shows. So it it worked out. We were lucky, put it that way.
0: You um, you mentioned Tony Bloom there. Is that right? You had a £3 million bet on his say-so, personally?
1: Um, No, the company took a huge position on on the Brazil-France match. And not only did did Tony, because we had a sort of trade office where he was putting money on events, but also our customers were all back in Brazil. And he was absolutely right. And he was right most of the time. Otherwise, he wouldn't be where he is now. I mean, he's a brilliant guy.
0: In in your book, Put Your Life On It, um, you mention about a a chap that introduced himself as the guy that turned the floodlights off. Um, It didn't affect you financially, but it was sort of fixing matches, basically, or at least contriving to end them when it was in a favourable position for the punter. Did you not think that when the level of business gets (coughs) so high that anything is corruptible and it's a little bit, you might be in a tricky situation?
1: Yeah, I think... I suppose the good thing is that they resorted to that because they couldn't get into the players. Now, you know, the the top leagues, although, you know, I'm not saying it doesn't happen or didn't happen. And, you know, it happened in tennis, cricket, that there were suspicious movements in markets. I mean, it's happened in racing. Um, But the fact that they had to resort to turning lights off means their influence of players or teams um, wasn't, I mean, they weren't influencing teams or, 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 or players. Um, that lasted a very short time until the rules were changed, that the, you know, the, um, the game had to finish. Um, it was very daring, um, but it never happened again. Um, well, it happened twice, didn't it? That's it, so it was soon dealt with, which was great.
0: And it, it was ultimately Asia a little bit too lively, did, sort of But really the
1: big players, is, is, it's still a big part of Bet 365s business, um, pictures business, I mean, and a huge amount of big Asian um, betting houses. I mean, the Asian market is still probably the biggest in the world, even with America Online.
0: Okay, now going back to uh, domestic things, reading, the, as I mentioned, the bookie and Jamie's book, there always seems to have been some sort of shady characters on the peripheries of the various uh, Chandler um, bookmaking, you know, whoever was around at the time. Um, is that right? And, did, and do you sort of enjoy flirtations with that element no, of society? No, I, I, I don't.
1: Listen, When you're at the race course, it's, it's a great uh, thing, I think, is that everyone's equal. Their money's the same. Uh, You know, you hear stories about people. um, But, you know, if if someone signs a bet and they're honourable and they pay their account, I don't care whether, uh, you know, I don't want to know anything. The the less you know, the better. Um, I mean, you know, the top of the tree, the bottom of the tree, there's there's an equality in in betting. Who am I to judge?
0: Now, it's actually come a bit closer to home because you got arrested in France when you were team. Yeah. You actually did a bit of time in the, fr- in the French. I, oh. I
1: did no time at all and I wasn't shut in a prison. Um, we were interviewed and we were asked to visit the police station. It was, you know, uh, we have been doing it for years and years. Um, we didn't take cash. Um, the bets were all phoned through to the office. The only cash changing hands was what we were the bits we and and I I include some of the boys that worked for me and uh, me, were placing on the uh, on the tote. But um, when I when we visited the police station the next day was it it did ruin the day as far as from a social point of view, and the results weren't too good either. but we would take, um, we went to the um, uh, the police station and we were interviewed, but they were not kind enough that um, we didn't have to get there early, kind enough to get us a sandwich for lunch. Um, and when the chief inspector arrived, and we, they thought we were dealing with French customers and people were coming in, and, uh, uh, and we'd almost, almost there and convincing them that that was uh, because we showed all the uh, the dockets and the names and the account numbers and all the rest of it we got a um, uh, uh, a document from the office with all the bets that had been phoned through and then the chief inspector arrived and said why are we all wasting our time doing this because it will be legal here soon and he walked me to the uh, the exit and he spoke fluent english although my french isn't bad and he said I, I just um i'm sorry this has all happened it shouldn't um and i've i've had the feedback from the the um the senior inspector that was um was there um and he said you, you know the fact that you weren't dealing with the uh anyone um, French, although there was a French customer of mine, uh, who, but he lived in Switzerland. So. Anyway, it was not nearly as bad as it was reported, or it wasn't really terribly worrying.
0: Never let the truth get in the way of a good story, yeah. as they say. But there was the.
1: Oh, t- did, yeah, we were worried. I thought, you know, <laughs> and especially the the chaps that worked for me were worried when we had the T-shirts printed with Frida Longchamp three, or four, or whatever it was. It was it was great, but but, um, but, but you know. It's, yeah. You learn, Uh, and we weren't allowed to rent a box again at the uh, uh, at but we've been doing it for 15 years.
0: There was the uh, the less sort of probably less fun incident with the triads, or well, we think maybe they they were they were triads that visited your team.
1: Uh, Well, we had a big office there in in Hong Kong. Um, uh, We had over 100 people in the office, and we had. Uh, all marketing staff and you know we had promotions in bars and um, restaurants and things like that we were were beer mats with our uh, telephone number uh, 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 all over hong kong and lots of pretty girls you know recruiting customers Um, and the tribes obviously didn't like that um, because that we were um, treading on their toes, and uh, um, the uh, the office was raided by some young men in t-shirts with tattoos, all well muscled, um, and um, Butch Brown, who was uh, working for me today, thought they were. Window cleaners when they walked in uh, and told them to get out the office and they said no you get out the office and uh, tell your uh, uh, and they they thought oh, I was his uncle I'm not his uncle but uh, uh, they said to your uncle that if he comes here he's got a big problem and he's and they they made all the staff leave the office and there were certain other th- threats to him. Um, we got him out of. Um, Hong Kong and booked him on, we booked him in about six hotels and he went to one of them and then we booked him on about four flights and got him to the airport uh, and got him out and then I flew over and met with the people in uh, Macau and uh, we sorted things out.
0: Okay Victor, this this part we're going to talk about what's happening now. But I'm just intrigued because, just tell me, if you've you've laid a three million pound bet or something on the football, Manchester United to beat Liverpool, I mean, do you sit there and watch it and get all excited or do you just go and do something and see what the result was? Um,
1: I, I won't watch it all the way through, I'll come and go. but I'll be, you know, you're usually more interested in the, the on a Saturday, you're more interested in all the results. You just need one and preferably two to go your way, and then it's jackpot, isn't it? Um, the big bets, yeah, i probably watch, you know, have it on in my office, but it's you, normally going the same time as racing, and I used to like to sit with loads of screens in my office with everything going on so and the phone going.
0: <laughs> so, how, how involved are you with racing these days? You've still got a horse in training. Um, and you, you know, do you like to have a bet, or do you still lay a few? I mean, what?
1: I just have a bet occasionally. I've A few bets at Cheltenham, which, you know, um, I think it's the first time i I won, you know, quite a bit this this um, this meeting last year. Um, wasn't so good. Um, but uh, you know, just have an interest, I'll I'll be watching Aintree. And I'll watch, you know, um, Doncaster when it starts and Newmarket, the early meetings, I always love watching. But, I, you know, I have an interest in, I worry about racing. I think there's uh, the the number of winners that Willie Mullins had um, takes a bit of the uh, thrill away, doesn't it, and, then, and it's a bit predictable. The number of runners that between um, uh, Mullins and uh, Elliot, you know, just wonder whether th- you know that eventually will drive people away although if the punters keep winning they'll probably stay um it might be just a blip a two-year blip i mean it's lovely to see um Blackmore riding r- winners like she does she's a breath of fresh air in the racing business there's something there's always something changing and there's I mean, um, I wonder how the Irish will fare at, uh, at Aintree. should be interesting. Um, I don't like the four days. Five days would, to me, make it worse. I think the three days was concentrated quality. There's no doubt. I, I can't agree with the allowances for mayors um, because you, you now you're seeing mayors, you know, the champion hurdle uh, winning um, far too often. I, I, I don't understand. Well, it's motivated by one thing money and that's what they're there for to make children but uh, the three days was special in that, that, that there was not a bad race there.
0: Okay, so you said that you won a few quid, how yeah. does somebody like Victor Chandler, do you go on the exchanges, have you got a, a benevolent bookie that doesn't mind taking your well informed bets?
1: I wouldn't tell you that. <laughs> uh.
0: Have you ever had the ignominy <laughs> of uh, having a, a bet maxed online? Have you have you gone down that route at all? No,
1: I'd, I wouldn't. Uh, no, I'd, I'd you know, it's, it, I'd do it privately.
0: Okay, look, you've, you mentioned that you're a bit worried. I mean, gambling's got a, a pretty what you describe as a toxic reputation, which seems to be getting worse in the UK, which has been part of our the UK's culture for centuries. It's sort of been turned around, um, with you know. The, the machines and that sort of thing, do you think it, it can it be spun back round the other way I mean it's going to take a big a big PR campaign isn't it to try and um,
1: there are always dangers in cracking down on gambling legit legal gambling, and you know we've got to a stage where I believe it's probably overregulated um, you know, does everyone have to live without any danger in life? I mean, it's it, casualties. Are, uh, I can understand the, the huge worries about online casinos, which are addictive. I mean, possibly, uh, in my early days, uh, if you wanted to have a bet, it was during racing. Football betting wasn't hugely prolific when when I started. So you had your afternoons racing, people had a bet, and then if they wanted to do anything else, the casinos were open, which you had to make an effort to go to. Um, online and fob FOBTs, very, very dangerous. Uh, you know, it's, it's 24-7, 365 days a year that you can have a bet, you can't calm down, you can't rethink, and it's very, very addictive. I can understand the worries of that. Uh, but you can go too far, and, uh, and what I mean by taking it too far is if they restrict things too much, it'll go under the counter. There'll be illegal bookmakers operating out of wherever, operating in a way that offers everyone everything without KYC, without regulations, without tax. Uh, drive it underground, and it's very, very hard. It's impossible to control, and that, that would be my main concern. Um, it's, you know, and and, and people's um, attitude to gambling, seemed, you know, from the time they closed down the, 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 the betting shops in the, um, I think it was the late 1890s, early 1900s, wasn't it? And that created the street bookmaker, who were mostly, uh, well, you couldn't lie on to to pay, but I suppose they most of them did because they survived. But there were lots of street warfare about pitches in in certain areas of um, the UK. Factories all had their own bookmakers. The streets were full of them, and it was underground. And then you know, legalized in the sixties, uh, but very, you know, very much controlled in the sixties with the blacked-out betting shop windows and. Uh, no seats and all that sort of thing. And slowly liberalised. And so now you're seeing a backlash. Uh, I I don't know. I, I uh, yeah. Uh, you know these campaigns happen and people latch onto them. There are no doubt casualties, but there's casualties with a lot of things in life.
0: Now um, you're associated with a, a bookmaking organisation in Africa.
1: I've put a bit of money into something. I don't have awful lot to do with it it was the idea unfortunately the uh, um, the young man uh, that got me interested who was um, a son of a a friend of mine Uh, he started off um, We left him to it he raised some money from me some other friends and uh, family uh, early on and unfortunately uh, as the company was expanding and uh, uh, and he was getting on top of it. Um, he died of COVID during the uh, the epidemic at 27, which is a setback. Um, I am involved. I hope. I wish it success, but I'm definitely not living out in uh, Kenya, Tanzania, Zambia, or anywhere like that.
0: Okay. You are what, what described as semi-retired now.
1: Yeah, I suppose.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you, you and your wife Carol I both love Riding and have horses in Spain. Yeah, um, and you have got two teenage sons that keep you that, that keep you young.
1: I'm not sure they keep be young. They made me feel really old, but that's another matter. Yeah.
0: Um, assuming, assuming you watch the TV and watch the racing on the TV, do you miss? Would you like to have been there at Cheltenham? Probably not with the results. But do you miss being in the cut and thrust of, uh, of uh, the dressing room?
1: Yeah. You know. E- e- I saw it through what I consider the probably the best period, other than pre-war, when you know when you only have to look at the films of racecourses in the uh, the 20s and 30s to uh, see huge crowds. Um, the post-war time was the 50s was very hard economically, around. The, uh, Got better and better, and um, the seventies um, was probably seventies, eighties, and nineties until technology changed everything. The best time for racing was fun, and, uh, and as I said before, it, it was it had an atmosphere on its own, and friendships were formed, and uh, people, trainers, jockeys, bookmakers mixed together, in the travelling circus was the um, and people used to stay for meetings then. Do I miss it? Yes, I do. But I wouldn't want to be doing it if you know what I mean. It's, it, it's I think it's a young man's game, um, and I've got other interests now. But it, it,
0: it was a period I loved. Your um, your age of spotting wrongly priced horses would have totally gone it, with the advent of the exchanges by the time they're racing.
1: I think it's harder now. Um, you know, and I most of the people i dealt with are retired or dead unfortunately um i i mean people like tony bloom still spot the anomalies in in football betting and make good livings at it uh, i presume there are people doing it now i do a few tips at uh at cheltenham from different four men uh helped, but I I don't take it, you know, it's it's not the be-all and end-all and um, going to bed and thinking about the next day's racing um, during Cheltenham.
0: Right, now, final question. Looking back on an extremely successful career, is there anything, if you could have whispered into young Victor's ear, back when he took over on the rails, I've got his pictures on the rails, is there anything you would have told him that might have... uh, change things a bit, if
1: you could have done that? Uh, no, I, I suppose it, that's a hard one, actually. What, what would I have told myself? Uh, I suppose the, the thing is, is it learn more quickly, but uh, you have to grow up. Well, I, I, I suppose I embraced embrace technology even earlier than I did. Um, and the, the changes in racing, the, the shock of Sunday racing, and being having been a huge supporter once it came, I, you know, I've realised from that day on, I'm working seven days a week instead of six days a week. Uh, it's it was it, it, it's it's very hard to think back who you were. Um, uh, I, I can't think of anything because uh, I enjoyed the learning curve. Um, I had a lot of fun. There are a few mistakes I made. A lot of mistakes I've made that and things like that uh, I regret happening. That uh, and you know from regret, regretting not to get to know other some people well and uh, and and trusting some people. We've always been let all been let down at different times. But no, I I, I can't think exactly what. I, I suppose. Uh, uh, should have opened a few more betting shops when I had the opportunity, but we did have lots at different times. but like they never interested me as much as uh, playing the game.
0: Okay, well you played the game extremely well, um, Victor Chandler, legend of the betting room. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you.
1: New betting people interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. BeGambleAware.org. Over 18 only.